Part six of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sections twenty nine to thirty three. Section twenty nine. Things grew a little easier with the parrots. Father Sturt saw that there was food while the mother was renewing her strength, and he had a bag of linen sent. More, he carried his point as to parish relief by main force. It was two shillings and three quartern loaves a week. Unfortunately, the loaves were imprinted with the parish mark, or they might have been sold at the chandler's, in order that the whole measure of relief might be passed on to the landlord, a very respectable man with a chandler's shop of his own for rent. As it was, the bread perforce was eaten, and the landlord had the two shillings, as well as eighteen pence, which had to be got in some other way. Of course, Hannah Perrott might have taken in lodgers in the room, as others did, but she doubted her ability to bully the rent out of them, or to turn them out if they did not pay. Whatever was pawnable had gone already, of course, except the little nickel-plated clock. That might have produced as much as sixpence, but she had a whim to keep it. She regarded it as a memorial of Josh, for it was his sole contribution to the family appointments. Dicky, with a cast-off jacket from the vicar's store, took to hanging about Liverpool Street Station in quest of bags to carry. Sometimes he got bags and coppers for carrying them. Sometimes he got kicks from porters. An hour or two of disappointment in his pursuit would send him off on the prowl to find new stock for Mr. Weech. He went farther afield now, to the market-places in Mile End and Stepney, and to the riverside, where there were many chances, guarded jealously, however, by the pirate boys of the neighbourhood, who would tolerate no interlopers at the wharves. In the very early morning, too, he practised the sandbag fake in the Jago. For there were those among the Jagos who kept, and even bred, linnets and such birds, and prepared them for jolking or singing snatches at the bag of nails. It was the habit of the bird fanciers to hang their little wooden cages on nails out of window, and there they hung through the night, for it had been noted, as a surprising peculiarity in linnets, that a bird would droop and go off song after a dozen or so nights in the Jago room, in company with eight, ten, or a dozen human sleepers, notwithstanding the thoughtful shutting of windows, so that any early riser provided with a little bag packed with a handful or so of sand could become an opulent bird-owner in half an hour. Let but the sandbag be pitched with the proper skill at the bottom of the cage, and that cage would leave the nail, and come tumbling and fluttering down into the ready hands of the early riser. The sandbag brought down the cage and fell quietly on the flags, which is why it was preferred before a stone. The sandbag faker was moved by no particular love of linnets. His spoil was got rid of as soon as the bird shops opened in Club Row, and his craft was one of danger. Thus the months went with Dicky and the years. There were changes in the Jago. The baby was but three months old when Father Sturt's new church was opened, and the club set going in new buildings, and it was at that time that Josh Perrott was removed to Portland. Even the gradual removal of the old Jago itself was begun. For the county council bought a row of houses at the end of Jago Row, by Honey Lane, with a design to build big barrack dwellings on the site. The scenes of the Jago Court eviction were repeated, with less governed antics. For the county council knew not Jago ways, and when deputations came forth weeping, protesting the impossibility of finding new lodgings, and beseeching a respite, they were given six weeks more, and went back delighted into free quarters. 
At the end of the six weeks, a larger deputation protested a little louder, wept a great deal more, and poached another month, for it would seem an unpopular thing to turn people into the street. Thus, in the end, when the unpopular thing had to be done, it was with sevenfold trouble, loud cursing of the county council in the public street, and many fights. But this one spot of the Jago cleared, the county council began to creep along Jago Row and into half Jago Street, and after long delay, the crude yellow brick of the barrack dwellings rose above the oft-stolen hoardings, and grew, story by story. Dicky was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. If Josh Perrott had only earned his marks, he would soon be out now. Section 30 Josh Perrott earned his marks, and in less than four years from his conviction he came away from Portland. It was a mere matter of hours ere his arrival in London, when Dicky, hands in pockets, strolled along Old Jago Street and by the posties to High Street. Dicky was almost at his seventeenth birthday. He had grown his utmost, and stood five feet two. He wore a cap with a cloth peak, and earlaps tied at the top with strings, slap-up kicksies, cut saucy, and a bobtail coat of the out-and-out -out description, though all these glories were torn and shabby, and had been bought second-hand. He was safe from any risk of the reformatory now, being well over the age, and he had had the luck never to have been taken by the police since his father's lagging though there were escapes too narrow to be thought about with comfort. It was a matter for wonderment, and he spoke of it with pride. Here he was, a man of long experience, and near seventeen years old, yet he had never been in prison. Few, very few of such an age, could say that. Sometimes he saw his old enemy, the hunchback, who worked at the shoemakers, but he saw him with unconcern. He cared nothing for tail-bearing now. The memory of old injuries had dulled, and after all, this was a merely inconsiderable hunchback, whom it were beneath his dignity to regard with anything but tolerant indifference. Bob Roper steered clear at such encounters, and showed his teeth like a cat, and looked back malevolently. It didn't matter. Dicky was not married, either in the simple Jago fashion, or in church. There was little difference, as a matter of fact, so far as facility went. There was a church in Bethnal Green where you might be married for sevenpence if you were fourteen years old and no questions asked. Or at any rate, there were questions answers whereunto were easy to invent. You just came in, drunk if possible, with a batch of some scores, and rowdied about the church with your hat on, and the curate worked off the crowd at one go, calling the names one after another. You sang, or you shouted, or you drank out of a bottle, or you flung a prayer book at a friend as the fancy took you and the whole thing was not a bad joke for the money, though after all sevenpence is half a gallon, and not to be wasted. But Dicky had had enough to do to look after his mother and Em and little Josh, as Hannah Perrott had called the baby. Dicky, indeed, had a family already. More. The Jago girls affected him with an odd feeling of repulsion. Not of themselves, perhaps, though they were squalid drabs long ere they were ripe for the sevenpenny church but by comparison with the clean, remote shop-girls who were visible through the broad windows in the outer streets. Dicky intended the day to be a holiday. He was not going out, as the word went, for ill-luck had a way of coming on notable days like this, and he might easily chance to fall before his father got home. He was almost too big now for carrying bags at Liverpool Street, because small boys looked cheaper than large ones. Not that there was anything specially large about Dicky, beyond his height of five feet two. 
and at the moment he could think of nothing else that might turn a copper. He stood irresolute on the high street footway, and as he stood, Kiddo Cook hove in sight, dragging a barrow-load of carrots and cabbages. Kiddo Cook had not yet compassed the store with a rain-proofed awning, but it was almost in sight, for the barrow could scarce hold all that he could sell, and it was a joke abroad that he was to be married in Father Sturt's church, some facetiously suggesting that Mother Gap would prove a good investment commercially, while others maintained the greater eligibility of old Pole Ran. "'Cheer, Dickie,' said Kiddo, pulling up and wiping his cap lining with a red cotton handkerchief. "'Oh, me out to die, i.e. "'Yes,' Dickie answered. "'Speak him up to-night.' Kiddo nodded and wiped his face. "'Fo's a mum will get up a break for him,' he said. "'He'll be have a bit of guilt from Sturt as well, won't he? "'So he'll be all right.' And Kiddo stuffed his handkerchief into his trousers' pocket, pulled his cap tight, and bent to his barrow handles. Dicky turned idly to the left and slouched to the corner of Meakin Street. There he loafed for a little while, and then went as aimlessly up the turning. Meakin Street was much as ever. There were still the Chandler shops where tea and sugar were sold by the farthings worth, and the barbers where hair was fashionably cut for three halfpence. Though Jago hair was commonly cut in another place and received little more attention, there was still Walker's cook shop, foggy with steam, its windows all a trickle, and there was the original slap-up Tog Emporium, with its Kixies and its Benjamins cut saucy as ever, and its double fakements still artful. At the dispensary there was another young student, but his advice and medicine were sixpence, just as his remote predecessors had been for little Louis, long forgotten. And farther down on the opposite side, Mr. Aaron Weech's coffee shop, with the Sunday school festival bills, maintained its general band of hope air, and displayed its shriveled bloaters, its doubtful cake, and its pallid scones in an odour of respectability and stale pickles. Dickie glanced in as he came by the door, and met the anxious eye of Mr. Weech, whom he had not seen for a fortnight. For Dickie was no boy now, but knew enough to sell at Cohen's, or elsewhere, whenever possible, and to care not a rap for Mr. Weech. As that tradesman saw Dicky, he burst into an eager smile and came forward. Good morning, eh? With a quick glance, Mr. Parrot, good morning. You're quite a stranger, really. Mr. Parrot, Mr. Weech was very polite. Dicky stopped and grunted a cautious salutation. Do come in, Mr. Parrot. Why, is this the good news right what I hear? About your father coming home from... From the country? Dicky confirmed the news. Well, I'm glad to hear that now. Mr. Weech grinned exceedingly, though there was something lacking in his delight. But there, what you'll have, Mr. Pirrot, say anything in the old shop and welcome. It's such a happy occasion, Mr. Pirrot. I couldn't think of charging you a halfpenny. Have a rasher, now, do. There's one on at this very moment. Sarah, ain't that rasher done yet? Dicky did not understand this liberality, but he had long since adopted the policy of taking all he could get. So he sat at a table, and Mr. Weech sat opposite. "'Just not old times, ain't it?' said Mr. Weech. "'And that reminds me, I owe you a shilling. It's that pair of new boots you chucked over the back fence a fortnight ago. When I come to look at em, they were better than what I thought. So I says to myself, "'This won't do,' says I, 
Only ninepence for a pair of boots like them ain't fair, I says, and I'd rather be a loss on them than not be fair. Fair's fair, as the Apostle David says in the Proverbs, and them boots is worth very near ten and nine. So I'll give Mr. Perrot another shilling, I says, the very next time I see him. And there it is. He put the shilling on the table, and Dicky pocketed it, nothing loath. The thing might be hard to understand, but that concerned him not. There was the shilling. Likewise, there was the bacon, and the coffee that went with it, and Dicky went at them with a will, recking nothing of why they were there, and nothing of any matter which might make the giver anxious in the prospect of an early meeting with Josh. Ah, uh, Mr. Weech went on, it'll be quite a pleasure to see your father again, that it will. What a blessed release! Free from the law! Oh, happy condition, as the im says. I hope you'll be well and hearty. And if there should be anything in the way of a friendly lead or subscription or what not, I hope. Remember this, Mr. Perrot, won't you? I hope you let me have the chance to put down something good. Not as I can really afford it, you know, Mr. Perrot. Trade's very poor, and it's such a neighbourhood. But I'll do it for your father, yes. If it's me last copper, you won't forget that, will you? And if he'd like any little relish when he comes home, such as an attic or a bit of ham, why, I'll wrap it up and send it. This was all very handsome, and Dicky wished some notion of the sort had occurred to Mr. Weech on a few of the dinnerless days of the past four years. But he went away wondering if it might not be well to regard Mr. Weech with caution for a while, for there must be a reason for all his generosity. Section 31 It was in Mother Gaps that Josh Perrot and his family met. Hannah had started out with an idea of meeting him at Waterloo Station, but finding herself an object of distinction and congratulation among the women she met, she had lingered by the way, accepting many little drops to prove herself not unduly proud, and so had failed of her intent. Josh, on his part, had not been abstinent. He had successfully run the gauntlet of prisoners' aid societies and the like, professing to have a job waiting for him in Shoreditch, and his way across London had been freely punctuated at public houses, for his prison gratuity was a very pleasant and useful little sum. And now, when at last they met, he was not especially gracious. He wanted to know not only why he had found nobody at home, but also why Hannah had never been to see him at Portland. As to the second question, the obvious and sufficient answer was that the return fare to Portland would have been some twenty-five shillings, a sum that Hannah had never seen together since Josh left her. As to the first, she protested, with muddled vehemence, that she had gone to meet him and had missed him by some mistake as to arrival platforms so that at length, urged thereto by the rest of the hour's customers at the feathers, Josh kissed her sulkily and ordered her a drink. M was distrustful at first, but drank her allowance of gin with much relish, tipping the glass again and again to catch the last drop, and little Josh, now for the first time introduced to Josh the elder, took a dislike to his father's not particularly sober glare and grin, and roared aloud upon his knee, assailing him, between the roars, with every curse familiar in the jago, amid the genial merriment of the company. Dicky came in quietly, and stood at his father's elbow, with the pride natural to a dutiful son on such an occasion, 
and at closing time they all helped each other home. In the morning Josh rose late. He looked all the better for his lagging, browner than ever in the face, smarter and stouter. In a corner he perceived the little heap of made matchboxes, and hard by, the material for more. It was Em's work of yesterday morning. "'Sabite all me industries,' said Josh musingly. "'Yes, Duppet's fadin' a gross.' And he kicked the heap to splinters. He strolled out into the street to survey the jago. In the bulk it was little changed, though the county council had made a difference in the northeast corner, and was creeping farther and farther still. The dispossessed jagos had gone to infect the neighbourhoods across the border, and to crowd the people a little closer. They did not return to live in the new barrack buildings, which was a strange thing, for the county council was charging very little more than double the rents which the landlords of the old jago had charged. And so another jago, teeming and villainous as the one displaced, was slowly growing, in the form of a ring, round about the great yellow houses. But the new church and its attendant buildings most took Josh's notice, though little more than begun when last he walked old Jago Street in daylight, and now they stood, large and healthy, amid the dens about them, a wonder and a pride. As he looked, Jerry Gullen and Bill Rann passed. Why, oh, brother-in-law, sang out Bill Rann, who remembered the old Bailey fiction of four years back, and thought it a capital joke. Nice sort of thing, ain't it? said Jerry Gullen, with indignant sarcasm, jerking his thumb toward the new church. The street's clean ruined. What's a good of living here now? Why, a man mustn't even do a click. Blimey! And don't you? asked Josh, with a grin. Hereat another grin broke wide on Jerry Gullen's face, and he went his way with a wink and a whistle. "'So you're back again, Josh Parrott,' said old Beveridge, seedier than ever, with a hard-up, fresh-chalked on the changeless hat. "'Back again! Pity you couldn't stay there, isn't it? Pity we can't all stay there!' Josh looked after the gaunt old figure with much doubt and a vague indignation, for such a view was foreign to his understanding and as he looked, Father Sturt came out of the church, and laid his hand on Josh's shoulder. "'What?' exclaimed the vicar. "'Home again without coming to see me? But there you must have been coming. I hope you haven't been knocking long. Come in now, at any rate. You're looking wonderfully well. What a capital thing a holiday is, isn't it? A good long one?' Taking Josh by the arm, he hauled him, grinning sheepish and almost blushing, toward the club door. And at that moment, Sam Cash came hurrying round Luck Row Corner, with his finger through a string, and on that string a bunch of grouse. "'Dear me,' said Father Sturt, turning back, but without releasing Josh's arm. "'Here's our dear friend, Sam Cash, taking home something for his lunch. Come, Sam.' With such a fine lot of birds as that, I'm sure you'll be proud to tell us where they came from, eh? For a moment Sam Cash was a trifle puzzled, even offended. Then there fell over his face the mask of utter inexpression which the vicar had learned to know. Said Sam Cash stolidly, "'Who'd be heavy a little shooty with a friend?' "'Dear, dear, what a charming friend! And where are his moors?' Nowhere about the Bethnal Green Road, I suppose, by the goods depot. 
Come now, I'm sure Josh Perrot would like to know. You didn't get any shooting in your little holiday, did you, Josh? Josh grinned, delighted, but Sam shuffled uneasily, with a hopeless sidelong glance as in search of a hole wherein to hide. Ah, you see, Father Sturt said, he doesn't want his friend's hospitality to be abused. Let me see. Two, four, six, why, there must be nine or ten brace, and all at one shot, too. Sam always makes his bag at one shot, you know, Josh, whatever the game is. Yes, wonderful shooting. And did you shoot the label at the same time, Sam? Come, I should like to look at that label. But the wretched Sam was off for the bolt, faster than a police pursuit would have sent him, while Josh guffawed joyously. To be rotted by Father Sturt was the true Jago terror, but to the Jagos looking on it was pure delight. Theft was a piece of the Jago nature, but at least Father Sturt could wither the pride of it by such ridicule as the Jago could understand. There! He's very bashful for a sportsman, isn't he, Josh? The vicar proceeded. But you must come and see the club at once. You shall be a member. Josh spent near an hour in the new buildings. Father Sturt showed him the club, the night shelter, the church, and his own little rooms. He asked, too, much about Josh's intentions for the future. Of course, Josh was going to look for a job. Father Sturt knew he would say that. Every Jago had been going to look for a job ever since the vicar first came to the place. But he professed to take Josh's words seriously, and offered to try to get him taken on as a plasterer at some of the new county council buildings. He flattered Josh by reminding him of his command of a regular trade. Josh was a man with opportunities, and he should be above the pitiable expedience of the poor untradesmanlike about him. Indeed, he should leave the Jago altogether, with his family, and start afresh in a new place, a reputable mechanic. To these things Josh listened with fidgety deference, answering only, Yes, father, when it seemed to be necessary. In the end he promised to think it over, which meant nothing, as the parson well knew, and in the mood in which Josh came away he would gladly have risked another lagging to serve Father Sturt's convenience, but he would rather have suffered one than take Father Sturt's advice. He made the day a holiday. He had been told that he was in for a little excitement, for it was held that fitting time had arrived for another scrap with Dove Lane. But the affair was not yet moving. Snob Spicer had broken a window with a Dove Laner's head, it was true, but nothing had come of it, and etiquette demanded that the next card should be played by Dove Lane. For the present, the Jago was content to take the thought for Josh's friendly lead. Such a thing was everybody's right on return from a lagging and this one was fixed for a night next week. All that day Mr. Weech looked out anxiously, but Josh Perrott never passed his way. Section 32 Bill Rand called for Josh early the next morning, and they strolled down Old Jago Street in close communion. "'Are you on for a job?' asked Bill. "'Cause I got one cut and dried, a topper, and safe as houses.' What sort of job's this? Why, a bust, unless we can screw it. This meant a breaking in, with a possibility of a quieter entrance by means of keys. It was unpleasantly suggestive of Josh's last exploit, but he answered, All right, depends, of course. 
Oh, it's a good'un. Bill Rann grinned, for no obvious reason, and slapped his leg to express rapturous amusement. It's a good'un. You can take your davy of that. I'll be thinking about it for a fortnight, but it wants too. Dammy, it's knobby. And Bill Rann grinned again, and made two taps of a step-dance. What you think? He pursued, suddenly serious. What you think of screwy offence? It was a novel notion, but in Josh's mind, at first flush, it seemed unsportsmanlike. What fence? asked Josh. Bill Rann's grin burst wide again. He bent low, with outstretched chin, and stuck his elbows out as he answered, Why, oh, witch! Josh bared his teeth, but with no smile, looking sharply in the other's upturned face. Bill Rann bent nearly double, and with hands in pockets, flapped his arms in the manner of wings, chuckled aloud, and, jerking his feet back and forth, went elaborately through the first movement of the gallows flap. Hey, hey, said he, is that strikey, old cock? Josh answered not, but his parted lips stretched wide, and his tongue-tip passed quickly over them while he thought. It'll be a fair cop for him, Bill pursued eagerly. These treat us all pretty mean, one time or other. Why, I bet he owes a fifty quid between us, what with all the times he squeezed us for a bit. It will only be going to bring away our own stuff. Grrr, Josh growled, glaring fiercely. It was him who put me away from a lagging, bleeding swine. Bill Rand stopped, surprised. What? Him? He exclaimed. Oh, which Narky? How'd you know that? Josh told the tale of his negotiations in the matter of the mogul's watch, and described Weech's terror at the sight of his dash at the shop door. "'I'm on,' said Josh in conclusion. "'It's one way of paying him, and I'll bring a bit in. Only he better not show himself when I'm about. He wouldn't get off with a punch on the chin like the bloke at Ivory.' Josh ended with a tigerish snarl and a white spot at the curl of each of his nostrils. "'Blimey!' said Bill Rann. And so it was him, was it? I often wondered who you meant. Well, flimping in's the best way. Won't he sing a bleeding yum when he finds out his stuff weeded? Bill flung back his head and laughed again. But there, let's lay out. And the two men fell to the discussion of methods. Weech's back fence was to be his undoing. It was the obvious plan. The front shutters were impracticable in such a place as Meakin Street but the alleys in the rear were a perfect approach. Bill Rann had surveyed the spot attentively, and after expert consideration, he had selected the wash-house window as the point of entrance. Old boxes and packing wood littered the yard, and it would be easy to mount a selected box, shift the catch of the little window, and wriggle in, feet first, without noise. True, the door between the wash-house and the other rooms might be fastened, but it could be worked at under cover, and Bill Rann had a belief that there must be a good deal of stuff in the wash-house itself. There would be nobody in the house but Weech, because the wretched old woman, who swept the floors and cooked bloaters, was sent away at night, so that every room must be unoccupied but one. As for tools, Josh had none, but Bill Rann undertook to provide them, and in the matter of time it was considered that the same night would be as good as any. It would be better than most, in fact, for it was Wednesday, and Bill Rann had observed that Mr. Weech went to the bank in High Street Shoreditch pretty regularly on Thursday mornings. This day also Mr. Weech kept a careful watch for Josh Perrott, 
but saw him not. Section 33 Hannah Perrott did her best to keep Josh from going out that night. She did not explain her objections, because she did not know precisely what they were, though they were in some sort prompted by his manner, and it was solely because of her constitutional inability to urge them with any persistence that she escaped forcible retort, for Josh was in a savage and self-centred mood. "'Why, what's up?' asked Bill Rann, when they met, looking doubtfully in his pal's face. "'You ain't been boozing, have ye?' Josh repelled the question with a snarl. "'No, I ain't,' he said. "'Got the tools.' There was a thickness in his voice, with a wildness in his eye, that might well explain his partner's doubt. "'Yes, come on to the light. I couldn't get no twirls, and we shan't want em. Here's a screwdriver, and two gimlets, and a knife for the window kitch, and little James, and a neddy.' "'A neddy,' Josh cut in, scornfully pointing his thumb at the instrument, which some call life-preserver. "'A neddy for which, girl. I might take a nitty to a man. That's all right, Bill replied. But it'd frighten him pretty well, wouldn't it? Look here. Suppose we can't find the oof. Why shouldn't we wake up Mr. Weech, very quiet and respectful, and ask him to help us? He's all alone, and I'm sure he'll be glad to oblige when he sees this ear neddy without waiting for a tap. Why, blimey, I believe he'd be afraid to sing out anyhow for fear of bringing in the coppers to find all the stuff he's bought on a crook. It's all dumb once we're inside. It was near midnight, and Bill Rann had observed Weech putting up his shutters at eleven, so the two Jagos walked slowly along Meakin Street on the side opposite Weech's, with sharp eyes for the windows. All was quiet. There was no visible light, none from the skylight over the shop door. None from the window above, none from the garret window above that. They passed on, crossed the road, strolled back, and listened at the door. There was no sound from within. The clock in a distant steeple struck twelve, and was joined at the fourth stroke by the loud bell of St. Leonard's, hard by, and ere the last mild note had sounded from the farthest clock in the awakened chorus, Josh Perrott and Bill Rann had taken the next turning, and were pushing their way to the alleys behind Weech's. Foul rat-runs, these alleys, not to be traversed by a stranger. Josh and Bill plunged into one narrow archway after another, each of which might have been the private passage of a house, and came at last, stealthy and unseen, into the muddy yard. Weech's back fence was before them, and black house-backs crowded them round. There were but one or two lights in the windows, and those windows were shut and curtained. The rear of Weech's house was black and silent as the front. They peered over the fence. The yard was pitch dark, but faint angular tokens here and there told of heaped boxes and lumber. "'We won't tip him in the whistle this time,' whispered Bill Rann, with a smothered chuckle. "'Over!' He bent his knee, and Josh straddled it from over the rickety fence with quiet care, and lowered himself gingerly on the other side. "'Clear here,' he whispered. "'Come on!' Since Bill's display of the tools, Josh had scarce spoken a word. Bill wondered at his taciturnity, but respected it as a business-like quality in the circumstances. It was but a matter of four or five yards to the wash-house window, but they bent and felt their way. Josh took up an old lemonade case as he went, and planted it on the ground below the window, stretching his hand for the knife as he did so. And now he took command and foremost place. 
It was an old shoemaker's knife, with too long a handle, for there was a skew joint in the sash, and the knife would not bend. Presently Bill Rann, below, could see that Josh was cutting away the putty from the pane, and in five minutes the pane itself was put into his hand. He stooped and laid it noiselessly on the soft ground. Josh turned the catch and lifted the sash. There was some noise, but not much, as he pushed the frame up evenly with a thumb each side. They waited. But it was quite still, and Josh, sitting on the sill, manoeuvred his legs, one at a time, through the narrow opening. Then, turning over, he let himself down, and beckoned Bill Rann to follow. Bill Rann had a small tin box with an inch of candle on the inside of one end, so that when the wick was lit, the contrivance made a simple but an effective lantern, the light whereof shone in front alone, and could be extinguished at a puff. Now a match was struck, and a quick view taken of the wash-house. There was not much about, only cracked and greasy plates, jars, tins, pots and pans, and in a corner a miscellaneous heap, plainly cheap pilferings, covered with a bit of old carpet. The air was offensive with a characteristic smell of weeches, the smell of stale pickles. "'There ain't nothing to waste time over here,' said Josh aloud. "'Come on!' "'Shut up, you damn fool!' exclaimed Bill Rann in a whisper. "'Do you want to wake him?' Uh, "'Why not?' was the reply, still aloud. Bill began to feel that his pal was really drunk, but, silent once more, Josh applied himself to the door of the inner room. It was crank and old, worn and battered at the edges. Josh forced the wedge end of the jemmy through the jam, splintering the perished wood of the frame, and, with a push, forced the striking box of the lock off its screws. There was still a bolt at the top. That at the bottom had lost its catch, but this gave as little trouble as the lock. Bill Rann strained the door open from below, the jemmy entered readily, and in a few seconds the top bolt was in like case with the bottom. They entered the room behind the shop, and it was innocent and disappointing. A loo table, four horsehead-covered chairs, a mirror, three coloured wall texts, two china figures, and a cheap walnut sideboard. That was all. The slow step of a policeman without stopped, with a push at the shop door to test its fastenings, and then went on, and stronger than ever was the smell of stale pickles. To try the shop would be mere waste of time. Weech's pocket was the till, and there could be no other prize. A door at the side of the room, latched simply, gave on the stairs. "'Take off your boots,' Bill whispered, unlacing his own, and slinging them across his shoulder by the tied laces. But Josh would not, and he said so with an oath. Bill could not understand him. Could it be drink? Bill wished him a mile away. "'All right,' he whispered. "'You sit down here while I slip upstairs and take a peep. I bet the stuff's in the garret. Best only one goes. Quiet.' Josh sat, and Bill, taking his lantern, crept up the stairs noiselessly, save for one creak. He gained the stairhead, listened a moment, tiptoed along the small landing, and was halfway up the steep and narrow garret stairs when he heard a sound and stopped. Somebody was on the lower flight. There was a heavy tread, with a kick of a boot against stair or skirting board, and then came noisy steps along the landing. Josh was coming up in his boots. Bill Rann was at his wit's end. He backed down the garret stairs and met Josh at the foot. "'Are ye balmy?' he hissed fiercely, catching Josh by the collar and pulling him into the turn of the stairs. 
Do you want another five-stretch? A loud creak and a soft thump sounded from behind the door at the other end of the landing, and then a match was struck. Keep back on the stairs, Bill whispered. He's heard you. Josh sat on the stair, perfectly still, with his legs drawn up out of sight from the door. Bill blew out his light. He would not venture open intimidation of Weech now, with Josh half-muzzy, lest some burst of lunacy brought in the police. A soft treading of bare feet, the squeak of a door-handle, a light on the landing, and Aaron Weech stood at his open door in his shirt, candle in hand, his hair rumpled, his head aside, his mouth a little open, his unconscious gaze upward, listening intently. He took a slight step forward, and then Bill Rand's heart turned over and over. For Josh Perrott sprang from the stair, and his shoulders humped and his face thrust out, walked deliberately across the landing. Weech turned his head quickly. His chin fell on his chest as by jawbreak. There were but dots amid the white of his eyes. His head lay slowly back as the candle tilted and shot its grease on the floor. The door swung wider as his shoulder struck it, and he screamed like a rabbit that sees a stoat. Then with a wrench he turned, letting drop the candle, and ran shrieking to the window, flung it open, and yelled into the black street, Help! Help! Police! Murder! 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 Run, Josh! Run, ye blasted fool! roared Bill Ran, bounding across the landing and snatching at his arm. Go on! Go on! I'm coming! Josh answered without turning his head, and Bill took the bottom stair at a jump. The candle flared as it lay on the floor and spread a greasy pool about it. Murder! 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 Josh had the man by the shoulder, swung him back from the window, gripped his throat, and dragged him across the carpet, as he might drag a cat, while Weech's arms waved uselessly, and his feet feebly sought a hold on the floor. "'Now!' cried Josh Perrott, glaring on the writhen face below his own, and raising his case-knife in the manner of a cleaver. "'Sing a hymn! Sing the hymn as'll do ye most good! You'll cheat me when you can!' And when you can't, you'll put me five years in stir, eh? Sing a hymn, you snivelling nark. From the street there came the noise of many hurrying feet and of a scattered shouting. Josh Perrott made an offer at slashing the slaty face, checked his arm and went on. You'll put something down at my break, will you? And you'll starve me wife and kids all to bones and teeth for a year. Sing a hymn, ye care. He made another feint at slashing. Men were beating thunderously at the shop door, and there were shrill whistles. "'Won't you sing your hymn? There ain't much time. My boy was going straight, and earning wages. Someone got him chucked. A man has time to think things out. Instead, sing, you son of a cow. Sing, sing!' Twice the knife hacked the livid face, but the third hack was below the chin, and the face fell back. The bubbling thing dropped in a heap and put out the flaring candle. Without, the shouts gathered to a roar, and the door shook under heavy blows. Open! Open the door! cried a deep voice. He looked out from the open window. There was a scrambling crowd, and more people were running in. Windows gaped and thrust out noisy heads. The flash of a bullseye dazzled him, and he staggered back. Parrot! Parrot! came a shout. He had but glanced out but he was recognised. He threw down his knife and made for the landing, slipping on the wet floor and stumbling against the heap. 
There were shouts from behind the house now. They were few, but they were close. He dashed up the narrow stairs, floundered through the back garret, over bags and boxes and heaps of mingled commodities, and threw up the sash. Men were stumbling invisibly in the dark yard below. He got upon the sill, swung round by the dormer frame, and went, hands and knees, along the roof. Yells and loud whistles rose clamant in the air, and his own name was shouted to and fro. Then the blows on the shop door ceased with a splintering crash, and there was a trampling of feet on the floorboards. The roofs were irregular in shape and height, and his progress was slow. He aimed at reaching the roof of Father Sturt's old club building, still empty. He had had this in mind from the moment he climbed from the garret window, for in the work of setting the drains in order, an iron ventilating pipe had been carried up from the stable yard to well above the roof. It was a stout pipe, close by the wall, to which it was clamped with iron attachments. Four years had passed since he had seen it, and he trusted to luck to find it still standing, for it seemed his only chance. Down below people scampered and shouted. Crowds had sprung out of the dark night, as by magic, and the police, they must have been lying in wait in scores. It seemed a mere matter of seconds since he had scaled the back fence, and now people were tearing about the house behind him and shouting out of windows to those below. He hoped that the iron pipe might not be gone. Good. It was there. He descended from the parapet, down into the stable yard, and the place seemed empty. He gripped the pipe with hands and knees and descended. The alley had no back way. He must take his chance in Meakin Street. He peeped. At the street end there was a dark obstruction, set with spots of light, a row of police. That way was shut. He must try the Jago. Luck Row was almost opposite, and no Jago would betray him. The hunters were already on the roofs. Men shouted up to them from the street, and kept pace with them, coming nearer. He took a breath and dashed across, knocking a man over at the corner. Up Luck Row, into Old Jago Street he ran, past his own home, and across to a black doorway, just as Father Sturt, roused by the persistent din, opened his window. The passage was empty, and for an instant he paused, breathless. But there were howls without, and the pelting of many feet. The man knocked over at the corner had given the alarm, and the hunt was up. Into the backyard, and over the fence, through another passage into New Jago Street, with a notion to gain the courts by Honey Lane, and so away. But he was thinking of the Jago as it had been. He had forgotten the demolishment. As he neared Jago Road, the place of it lay suddenly before him an open waste of eighty yards square, skirted by the straight streets and the yellow barracks, with the board school standing dark among them, and along the straight streets more men were rushing, and more police. They were newcomers. Why not venture over? He rubbed his cheek, for something like a film of gum clung to it. Then he remembered, and peered closely at his hands. Blood, sticking and drying and peeling. Blood on hands and face, Blood on clothes, without a doubt. To go abroad thus were to court arrest, were he known or not. It must be got off. But how? To go home was to give himself up. The police were there long since. They swarmed the Jago through. Some half-dismantled houses stood at hand, and he made for the nearest. There were cellars under these houses, reached from the back yards. Many a Jago had been born, had lived, and had died in such a place. A cellar would hide him for an hour, while he groped himself clean as he might. 
Broken brickwork littered the space that had been the backyard. Feeling in the dark for the steps, which stood in a little pit, his foot turned on a stone, and he pitched headlong. The cellar itself was littered with rubbish, and he lay among it a little while, breathless and bruised. When he tried to rise, he found his ankle useless. It was the old sprain, got at Mother Gap's before his lagging, and ever ready to assert itself. He sat among the brickbats to pull off the boot. That was foul and sticky too, and he rubbed the ankle. He had been a fool to think of the cellar. Why not any corner among the walls above? He had given way to the mere panic instinct to burrow, to hide himself in a hole, and he had chosen one wherefrom there was no second way of escape. None at all, but by the steps he had fallen in at. Far better to have struck out boldly across the streets by Columbia Market to the canal. Who could have seen the smears in the darkness? And in the canal he might have washed the lot away, secure from observation, under a bridge. The thing might be possible, even now, if he could stand the pain. But no, the foot was useless when he tried it. He was trapped like a rat. He rubbed and kneaded the ankle diligently, and managed to draw the boot on, but stand on both legs he could not. He might have crawled up the steps on hands and knees, but what was the use of that? So he sat and waited. Knots of men went hurrying by, and he caught snatches of their talk. There had been a murder. A man was murdered in his bed. It was a woman. A man had murdered his wife. There were two murders. Three. The tale went every way, but it was always murder, murder, murder. Everybody was saying murder, till in the passing footsteps, in the vague shouts in the distance, and presently, in the mere black about him, he heard the words still. Murder, murder, murder. He fell to contrasting the whispered fancy with the real screams in that bedroom. He wondered what Bill Rand thought of it all, and what had become of the James and the Gimlets. He pictured the crowd in old Jago Street, pushing into his room, talking about him, telling the news. He wondered if Hannah had been asleep when they came, and what she said when they told her. And more people hurried past the ruined house, all talking murder, murder, still murder. The foot was horribly painful. Was it swelling? Yes, he thought it was. He rubbed it again. What would Dicky do? If only Dicky knew where he was. That might help. There was a new burst of shouts in the distance. What was that? Perhaps they had caught Bill Ran. But that was unlikely. They knew nothing of Bill. They had seen but one man. Perhaps they were carrying away the heap on a shutter. That would be no nice job, especially down the steep stairs. There had been very little in the wash-house, and nothing in the next room. The garrets were pretty full of odd things, but no doubt the money was in the bedroom. The smell of stale pickles was very strong. So his thoughts chased one another, eager, trivial, crowded, till his head ached with their splitting haste. To take heed for the future, to plan escape, to design expedients. These were merely impossible, sitting there inactive in the dark. He thought of the pipe he had slid down, what it cost, why they put it there, who the man was that he ran against at Luck Row, whether or not he hurt him, what the police would do with the bloaters and cake and bacon at the shop, and again, of the smell of stale pickles. Father Sturt was up and dressed, standing guard on the landing outside the parrot's door. The stairs were full of jagos, mostly women, 
constantly joined by newcomers, all anxious to batter the door and belabour the hidden family with noisy sympathy and sedulous inquiries. All that is, except the oldest Mrs. Walsh in the Jago, who, possessed by an unshakable conviction that Josh's wife must have drubbed him to it, had come in a shawl and a petticoat to give Hannah a piece of her mind. But all were driven back and sent grumbling away by Father Sturt. Every passage from the Jago was now held by the police, and a search from house to house was begun. With clear consciences, the Jagos all could deny any knowledge of Josh Perrott's whereabouts. But a clear conscience was little valued in those parts, and one after another affirmed point-blank that the man seen at the window was not Perrot at all, but a stranger who lived a long way off. This, of course, less by way of favouring the fugitive than of baffling the police, the Jago's first duty. But the police knew the worth of such talk, and the search went on. Thus it came to pass that in the grey of the morning a party in New Jago Street, after telling each other that the ruins must be carefully examined, climbed among the rubbish and was startled by a voice from underground. "'All right!' cried Josh Perrott in a cellar. "'I'm done! It's a cop! Come and help me out of this hole!' End of Part 6